As Jackson said, our reading tonight comes from Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Um, If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 843. It's up on the screen. Let's give you a moment to find it. Alrighty. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's a parable we know so well. Uh, the temptation is that our minds switch off because we know. We know what it says. We know what I'm going to say. And yet it's God's word. And so maybe what I'll say isn't what you expect me to say. Let's pray first. Our Father, we confess that we can come to your word with a sense of already knowing what you're saying. And by doing so, we place ourselves over the word and we're in charge, we're in control. And we realise that our hearts are actually proud, that we know better. We've put you in a box. Please make our hearts humble. 
please lead us to repentance for thinking such things. For you are God, not us. And you are good and gracious. And your word is to give us life. And we treat it with such disdain so often. Please forgive us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit and his desire to hear your word afresh and to bring life. Please help me to speak in a way that honours you. Amen. Well, I was at a mission prayer meeting recently uh, and there was a lady on Zoom. There were probably about eight people in the room uh, along with this lady on, on Zoom. A friend had sent her some information about a need to help students, students who were part of a a refugee group that had been resettled in Australia. They come from a persecuted group in Central Asia where the dominant religion has killed lots of these people. And so Australia has welcomed them as refugees and they've been resettled in Toowoomba. There is no known Christian amongst this people group. The lady is a retired teacher. She lives in Nowra. And she had this message sent from a friend about this need. And she prayed, and the need remained with her. And so she moved from Nowra to Toowoomba. She packed up everything and moved from Nowra to Toowoomba. That deeply impressed me. People to whom she had no responsibility for, no commitment to, and yet she packed up her life and moved to help. Would I do that? I've been aware lately how easy it is to become complacent, thinking I'm going okay as a Christian, things I'm pleased about, subtly, although I wouldn't say it, the sense of God's God's going okay. And yet the reality is there are opportunities to love God by serving others, which I pass by so regularly, and I justify why it is right for me to pass by. I get seduced into thinking what worship is really all about, that this is worship here, that worship's in a box. But the parable of the Good Samaritan wants to blow that box apart and say that worship is not just what we do here, but it's about all of life. Parable is a story using something from everyday life to bring about a deeper spiritual meaning. In Luke chapter 8, just a couple of chapters before this, Jesus told the parable of the seed, a sower or farmer spreading seed and falling in different places. And he then said to his disciples in verse 10 of chapter 8, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. 
It's actually taken from the Old Testament. It's part of Isaiah's call. The things of everyday life, like a farmer planting seed, would make sense to people. They knew what Jesus was talking about. And yet the deeper thing to which the parable was pointing to, for many they would not perceive that. And in fact that they did not perceive it confirmed a hardness in their hearts towards God. And yet for some who would hear the parable, they would go away thinking about it, troubled by it. What did Jesus mean by that parable? I can't get it out of my head. And round and round it would go. And the Spirit of God would be working to bring light to understand what it means to live in his kingdom. Well, he was a barrister. He was an expert in religious law. He respected Jesus, as is seen by getting up and standing. Teachers taught by sitting down. Jesus would have been sitting. This guy got up and addressed Jesus. But he had concerns about Jesus. See, Jesus had been associating with dubious people. And some of his teaching was also questionable. And the barrister, who was an expert in the law, wanted to test Jesus. Probably the word test is nitpick. He wanted to pick up points that he didn't agree with with Jesus. And so he chose a current controversial topic. Something where there was lots of different opinions to see whether Jesus was true. And the topic was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now God had given the Jews the land of Israel. And over time, they had associated eternal life with remaining in the land. And in order to remain in the land, they need to keep God's instruction. So it was important that the Jews knew what they had to do so they could obey what they had to do so they could remain in the land. In response to that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? the barrister would have had in his own mind several key commandments that must be kept. Instead, Jesus does what he often did and he asks a question in response to a question. What does the Torah say? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. God's, you may know it as God's law or God's instruction. What does God's instruction say about that? He, Jesus asked. And the lawyer rehearsed in his mind, gave this creedal response, taken from both Deuteronomy and Leviticus, two books within the first five of the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Well, Jesus affirmed the man's answer. 
And Jesus said, go and do that and you will live. Well, that caught the lawyer off guard. He wanted to have a theoretical debate. And Jesus had given a very practical response. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? Here's what you do. But what was more troubling for the lawyer was the breadth of the answer. The lawyer expected a set of rules to guarantee eternal life, but Jesus had broadened it to every every aspect of life to love God with unlimited and unqualified love and to love my neighbour the same way. Well, the lawyer's a barrister for a reason. He's a quick thinker. And he comes up with a response for Leviticus. Leviticus 19 speaks about a neighbour in the context of being a relative or a Jew. And again, trying to test Jesus, he asked, well, who is my neighbour? You see, Jesus, until I'm clear about who my neighbour is, how can I know who to love and who I don't need to love? So Jesus responded with a parable. A man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 27 dangerous kilometres. As you don't know who you're going to meet as you're walking down and lots of attacks happen on this road, you are looking out for who is approaching. You're on edge. And there's two obvious ways to work out and identify people. It's by their clothes for each community has something distinctive and by having a quick conversation so you can pick up the dialect. Well, in this parable, the man has been robbed. He's beaten. He's stripped. He's unconscious. He's close to death. He has no clothes to identify him. He's unconscious. He can't talk. A priest was passing by probably on his way home, having been to the temple. Though we're not told, certainly, certainly the priest is riding a donkey. For priests were from the upper class and no one in the Middle East walks 27 kilometres when they don't have to. He sees the man on the ground in the distance and he gives a wide berth. What should he do? Well, rabbinical teaching, which are interpretations of Jewish law, said to offer sinners, to offer help to sinners, may mean being disobedient to God. Well, he doesn't know whether this man's a sinner or not. Other rabbinical teachings said that one was bound to help another if they saw him in trouble. But the priest didn't see the man in trouble, he's come afterwards. And what if he's actually dead? A priest was not allowed within two metres of a dead body. Otherwise, he became unclean. Then what would happen to the people he's going home to if he can't serve them? Not to mention the cost of an animal sacrifice and the humiliation of knowing that he had been in contact with someone who's defiled or a dead body. The priest was a victim 
of a rule book mentality. Life is about do's and don'ts. It's certainly nice to have black and white to know what to do and what not to do. Until we come across a situation that doesn't fit into a clear rule. And then the safest thing is to maintain our reputation. Don't get involved for you don't know what will happen. Well, a Levite came along. He had probably also been at the temple. And most of the way on the road, you can see ahead some distance. So the Levite's aware the priest is in front of him. Now, unlike the priest, the Levite is not bound by as many regulations. He's only required to observe ritual cleanness at the temple. So he's more in a position to stop and help. The Levite approaches for a closer look, but then he decides to move on. I guess he may have thought, well, if the priest didn't stop, why should I? But most probably he thought, if I stop, I'd be questioning the priest and his interpretation of the law. What does a Levite know compared to the professional clergy about who a neighbour is? priest, a Levite, the barrister expects the next person to be a layman. For ordinary Jews have to serve two weeks at the temple. But to his shock, Jesus says, a Samaritan. One Jew had said, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. The Samaritans were hated despised, they were to stay clear of entirely because there were other nationalities that were interbred with Jews. Interestingly, Samaritans have the same five books of the Bible. That's their scriptures. So the Samaritan would also know the passage that refers to a neighbour as a relative or another Samaritan. And the reality is that in being in Israel, it is even less likely that the injured man is a Samaritan. But the Samaritan's also in danger of, con of contamination by touching maybe a dead body. And he risks retaliation from the man's family if they were to find out that a Samaritan had touched a Jew. And yet the compassion of this hated Samaritan compels him. He stops. He softens the dry blood with oil, disinfects the wounds with wine and binds them up. Oil and wine are not only first aid materials, but they're elements used in worship. The word for pour, for the wine and oil, comes from the worship language for pouring drink offerings. Interestingly, many manuscripts have the words bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Can you see what they're saying? 
It's the wrong way around. You bandage their wounds and then pour water on. You pour water on first and then you bandage the wounds. But it's placed this way around for emphasis. In Hosea chapter 6, God called Israel to return and he would bind their wounds. The Samaritan reflects God saving his people even though he's an outcast. The priest and the Levi had opportunity to worship God through attending to this man, but they chose to keep safe. They chose their reputation. They chose to keep worship in the temple. And yet true worship is not about place or ritual, but about responding to what God has done. So Hosea, in that same chapter, chapter 6 and verse 6, speaks of God not being interested in sacrifices and offerings, but what he wants is mercy. The priest and the Levite thought they knew all about worship, but they bypassed the very opportunity to worship God that was in front of them. Well, the Samaritan gives first aid, which the Levite did not, puts the man on his donkey to bring him to an inn, which the priest did not. Middle Eastern culture practised an eye for an eye. So the safest thing for the Samaritan is to leave the man at the inn and go his way, to stay, and then again to return meant his own life might be in danger from the man's relatives who may kill him. Reversing what the priest and Levite did not do, the Samaritan now compensates for the robbers. The wounded man has no money and not to pay may mean that he is arrested for an outstanding debt. So the Samaritan pays and the man is free from debt. Which of these was a neighbour? Well, the barrister can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. So he says, the one who showed mercy. This lawyer wanted a clear definition of who his neighbour is. So he knew what he had to do and what he didn't have to do. To whom must I become a neighbour? To anyone in need even my enemies. I want to conclude by saying three things very briefly. The priest and the Levi didn't want to get involved because it might interfere with their worship. It is so easy to fall into the thinking that what we are doing now is worship. And then we leave and then what we're doing is something else. Well, maybe I worship God in my quiet time. And then I go to work or I connect with other people. But this parable reminds us that worship is about every part of life. 
it is always safe and it's almost always easy to rationalise why I should not help. But could I or could you be foregoing opportunities to worship God through loving others by meeting people's needs as you come across them? But having said that, we need to stop and be realistic for we can't meet everyone's need. I may come across a hundred people a day in need and I can't meet their needs. A number of years ago, uh, I went into the city. We used to live up in Newcastle. I went to the city. I grew up in Sydney and I, I used to go into the city occasionally. Very different now. But I went in and I was overwhelmed with the number of homeless people in the city. Overwhelmed. Mattress after mattress after mattress, sleeping bag after sleeping bag after sleeping bag, people on a corner here, the next corner, the next corner, begging for money, everywhere. It was culture shock for me. I couldn't handle it. I gave some money to one person. I gave some money to another person. And I thought, this is hopeless. I don't have this much money. We can't meet everyone's need. I can't even meet the needs of the people closest to me. But if I pause and think about the parable, I'm actually confronted with a real problem. I'm in a grave predicament because Jesus' answer to the lawyer was that unless we love God with and love our neighbour to that unqualified extent, we cannot inherit eternal life. The reality is I fall short and I fail. But the one who was despised and rejected is actually the one who saves us. We are like the man beaten and left for dead. We can't rescue ourselves. We're helpless. But Jesus, who was like the hated and rejected Samaritan, who was hated by humanity, can. The immortal God becomes mortal to rescue and give us life through giving his own life. And the third thing is, it's interesting that Luke has chosen to place this parable where he has. Luke is obviously a very intelligent person compiling this gospel. And he's very intentional about what he does. Uh, someone was, I preached this sermon this morning and someone was talking to me this morning, which was helpful, because uh, I talked about what comes afterwards. After this parable, there's a story about Mary and Martha. Martha wants to prepare a meal for Jesus and his disciples and she gets really worried because she has this great need 
and Mary, her sister, won't help her. And Jesus says to Martha, Mary's actually chosen the better thing, sitting down and listening to me. It seems that Luke is intentional. I may be wrong, but it seems that Luke is intentional placing this where it is because Martha has this need to be met. But Jesus says, it's better to listen to me. And so it seems to say there's a balance. There's a balance between being concerned for others' needs and spending time by allowing God's word to feed us. You see, I think if we don't spend time allowing God's word to feed us, we become overwhelmed with so much need that eventually the danger is we become bitter and resentful and we begin to turn our backs on people. But by spending time with God's word, allowing the character of God to instruct us, we begin to become sensitive to people's needs that he wants us to meet. See, when needs come to us and they stay with us, like the teacher that I started with, that's an opportunity for us to help meet that need, I think. But it's interesting what's before. Jackson referred to it about Jesus sending out his disciples, 72, on mission. And it seems maybe that Luke has recorded this parable here. Because meeting people's needs is an incredibly gracious way to help in evangelism. There's nothing like meeting someone's need that they are willing to engage with you in gratefulness. An opportunity to build rapport, to journey alongside, because they notice that you are different to other people. Parables are designed that people will go away and keep pondering over it. Uh, there's a book, uh, I can't remember who it's been written by, uh, but it's, it's about parables in Luke. And the title is A Sting in the Tail. Jesus' parables have a sting in the tail. I wonder if you'll go away, keep pondering this parable. Or whether you'll go away and you understand at one level, but actually does none of its work leading us towards God's kingdom. I wonder if you'll go away asking the question Who is my neighbour? I wonder if you'll go away pondering what worship is and how much of a box you have worship in.
I wonder. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your spirit who takes your word and helps us to ponder. We do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he stepped outside the box. And we confess it's so scary sometimes to do. It's threatening to do. There's such a cost involved in doing it. And it's so easy to be comfortable in the box. Now, Father, we thank you. You called us to be followers of the Lord Jesus, which means we can't really stay in the box. So in that complexity and our fear and our concerns and worried about what that means for us and what other people will think, help us to, as much as we can, keep our eyes and our lives focused on you. Help us to spend time in your word that we may be attuned to the needs that you want us to meet. Our Father, we confess without even realising it how proud we are. We don't want to associate with other people, people who are in need, people who are different to us. Help us to please keep pondering on this parable. Amen.